Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. This is AppSats Radio, help for partners after sexual betrayal. We talk about it here. Betrayal trauma. We are APSAT certified clinical partner specialists and coaches who have been trained to help navigate you through this crisis. There is nothing we won't talk about. So I've got Amy on the line. Amy, welcome to the show. What's your question? Well, I have a question about what um, healthy sexuality looks like when Mm. a sex addict is in recovery. One of the things we know about research and sex addicts is that they don't necessarily want sex with their own wife. And so, to me, that says he's in really good recovery because he does want that with you. He has been two years sober. He has been in three facilities. And I suspect that's how he's wanting closeness with you. Welcome. Hi, I'm Carol Jurgensen. She's a.k.a. Carol the Coach and Amy. Amy wondered about healthy sexuality after sexual betrayal, and that is something that I know so many of you wonder about, too. You know, this is uncharted territory, and so it makes it very difficult to know how to proceed after sexual betrayal, what does sexuality look like, when do you have sex, again, So many people um, have sex right away. It's almost as if they want to make sure they're still loved or they want to provide to the addict the thing that he left the relationship for. So we're talking about a tough subject today. I want to give you a heads up. You know, it is about sexual deception. When does sex with a cheating partner become sexual assault. Now, you may say, oh, well, gosh, I would never be with a man if he raped me or exploited me or took advantage of me. We're not necessarily talking about that kind of sexual deception, sexual betrayal. We're talking about the man that has participated in unprotected sex with sex workers, with prostitutes, in massage parlors, And they've had unprotected sex, and then they've come home, and they've had sex unbeknownst to you, with you, and you didn't even know that he was acting out. This has undoubtedly and potentially exposed you to a lot of STDs, STIs, um, you know, and may even have further implications and repercussions that go beyond you. You know, I'm thinking about a couple that they were doing a disclosure and he shared with her because one of her questions was, had you ever had unprotected sex? And he frequented uh, sex workers and prostitutes, escort services, We're calling them sex workers these days. And he said, yes, I did. And she said, her next question, which was impromptu, it was not actually written down. She said, did you ever do that when I was pregnant? And he thought about it. And he said, yes, I did. And she said, my gosh, 
you exposed our unborn child to an STI? Are you kidding me? You would do that to our unborn child? And and just like a typical woman, right? She was more aghast at the fact that he exposed her, excuse me, exposed their child to that kind of potential for disease, sometimes being fatal, right? Um, then she even felt for herself. And so we're going to really talk about how does this occur? How does somebody that you love that's conceivably a nice man get sucked up into this compulsion and then complicate things further by not protecting himself, which doesn't protect you, which means that you have ended up having sex with all your spouse's sex workers or qualifiers? And is that a crime? Would you consider it a crime? What do the professionals think? You know, there's no doubt that sex in a relationship where intimate deception is taking place is a non-consensual act. And there are many partners that report feeling raped due to having been, unbeknownst to them, exposed to multiple sex partners and the potential of illness. So, Again, this is a hard topic to talk about. And if you're just um, experiencing discovery and, you know, you're fairly new to this trauma, I want you to stay safe and I want you to protect yourself. When we talk about these kinds of difficult situations, it can create multiple triggers. And if you're somebody that you've been working on your own recovery and you're still with um, your husband and or wife and there's been good recovery, you may find that today's show triggers you back to where you were the first three, six, nine, or 12 months. But it is important to think about because we really as a society need to work on advocating for women and for couples so that there's there's more forethought and knowledge about this stuff, you know, before it happens. You know, even even when it comes to sex education. So I'm gonna be interviewing one of my favorite people. Alexandra Katahakis, we call her Alex. She is the director for the Center for Healthy Sex. And I don't know how she does it, but she bides her time between topics like this. She wanted specifically to talk about this topic. And then healthy sex, you know, sex that encourages empathy and intimacy and trust and vulnerability. So... Hopefully we can kind of toggle back and forth, and, and um, Alex is not an abscess. Um, 
she is a CSAT, and she's actually a CSAT supervisor, as well as an ASECT, which, of course, is the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. So she has a lot of information to share. Now, I was thinking, you know, what can I give my listeners today? What can I impart on them that will be a coping skill um, for the week? You know, something that you might appreciate learning about or uh, finding out about. So I did a supervision for some APSATS candidates, and we do consultation supervision. And we talked about how important it is to know that conflict in healthy relationships breeds intimacy. And so you never want to shy away from sharing your angry feelings when you're repairing a relationship. You got to be able to figure out how to do that appropriately. You would never want to do it aggressively. You wouldn't want to call somebody names or put them down or beat them up. That would be aggressive. And, you know, there are four types of communication, and they are passive, where you just let anybody steamroll you, uh, aggressive, which I just referenced, and then passive-aggressive, that's when you um, get somebody back behind their back. I think women may have a tendency to do this when they get mad at one of their friends or family. And they share information that they really shouldn't be sharing with other family or friends. You know, that that's when you're really mad at somebody and you get them back by gossiping behind their back. Or I always say one of my most classic stories was the woman who was expected to clean the house perfectly. And she came in week after week with bruises on her body and horrific stories about how she didn't do things perfectly. And one day she came in my office and she's sitting on a couch And she was very prim and proper, always wore pearls and, you know, dressed like to the nines, suits and crisp crepe blouses and, you know, hose. This is back in the day of hose. Many of you may not even know what hose are. But she came in one day and she sat on the couch cross-legged. And she was just, her posture was different. She was happy. And I thought to myself before I started asking her questions, I thought, she has left him. She is no longer chained to him and his expectations that she be perfect. And so I said, so what's going on? How are you? And she said, I'm fine. And I go, anything new? And she said, no, not really. And I go, well, you look really different. And she said, no, I I can't think of anything that's different. And I go, well, how's the house cleaning? Um, And she said, oh, I'm still working really hard at it. 
and my heart sunk because I thought, oh, boy. You know, remember, I'd seen her come in with bruises because she didn't do this well enough. She was not a partner, by the way. This is just a normal story about somebody who had multiple problems that didn't have sexual betrayal. And so I said, well, I cannot tell you. We'll call her Susan. I said, Susan, I cannot emphasize that I'm seeing something very different about you. Um, and she said, well, you know, I really think that I have mastered my ability to clean. And I said, oh, again, my heart just sunk. And I said, what do you mean mastered your ability to clean? She says, I figured out how to clean perfectly. And I said, oh, really? Tell me about it. And what she said to me was, I figured out that the best way to clean the toilets were to use his toothbrush. And I realized two things. Susan was exhibiting passive-aggressive behavior. Um, And that's not a healthy form of behavior. Even if you're being beaten, it is not healthy to be passive-aggressive to get somebody back behind their back. But the second thing I thought is, oh, my gosh, if he ever discovers that, he'll kill her. Okay, maybe you won't kill her. But if he's roughing her up for not cleaning, he's really going to be assaulting her for using his toothbrush, right? And so I explained to her how dangerous that was and why she needed to work on assertiveness, and she needed to be clear and direct about how she felt, what she thought, and what she believed. And I knew that it wasn't necessarily safe to be assertive, and so we talked about the ramifications of that. Well, we worked together for about a year and a half, and she eventually left her husband. Um, She realized she could no longer stand his uh, physical beatings and his expectations that she'd be perfect. So those are the four types of communication, and I always want you to strive to be assertive, but you have to be careful being assertive with somebody who's going to physically aggress against you. We can talk more about that later. Today, we're going to be talking about sexual deception. When does sex with a cheating partner become a sexual assault? So I can't wait to introduce my guest. I think the world of her. Alex Hadahakis, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, um, Carol. Yeah, I was telling our listening audience before you got on the call that you are a woman who has done it all. You're a PhD, you're a licensed marriage and family therapist, you're part of ASECT, you are a certified sex educator, you work with how to develop normal intimacy and empathy and trust. And and then you pick topics like today when we're actually talking about sexual assault. Hmm. Well, well, you know, I, yeah. Yeah, tell me what made you decide that this would be an important topic to talk about today. Well, when you invited me to come on this podcast, I, of course, thought about sexual health and sexuality and 
you know, ways that sex can be pleasurable and because I think, you know, we lack so many messages about sexual health. It's all about, you know, this dour problem, especially people who've suffered intimate betrayal. But more recently, I've been working with um, a woman in her 60s who's been married for approximately 40 years, and the level of sexual deception and the impact it's had on her has sort of blasted my perspective beyond the betrayal trauma that we typically think about. And so it felt imperative for you and I to have a conversation about this. And I certainly don't have all the answers to it. Um, But the thing that is so um, sort of in the forefront of my mind right now is that the field of sex addiction, as you know, and sex addiction treatment largely ignored partner trauma until approximately 2005. Um, It was conceptualized more as uh, codependency, and um, that was just a gross... I think blind spot in large part from, you know, the inception of the sex addiction model because it was really about, you know, white men getting white men sober and there wasn't a whole lot of thought about the family and the partners and the folly was that they just decided to lay the Alcoholics Anonymous model on top of the sex addiction model. Problem there, though, of course, is that when somebody's drinking, you know it. You can smell it on their breath. They're passed out. They're throwing up. There are bottles everywhere. Um, and if you are hiding that and lying for that person, you are, quote, enabling them. But with sex addicts, often the level of deceit is so profound um, that people can't see, women don't know that it's going on whatsoever. So our focus has been really since 2005 on the betrayal trauma, the impact on the attachment system and the absolute effect that has on the autonomic nervous system and the central nervous system as well. And that's what therapists have been working feverishly to repair and reconceptualize. But this feels like a deeper layer of understanding um, what, of what happens to women, and I'm specifically talking about heterosexual dyads that are married now or in long-term committed relationships, um, when their partner is having sex with other people and also having sex with them, which would be different than a porn addict, for example. So does that answer your question? That's sort of a long version. <laughs> Well, absolutely, and it sounds like you're entertaining the belief that this really is an assault because a woman who doesn't have any understanding or conceptualization that her husband is having unprotected sex with sex workers, um, he's committing a crime because he's exposing her to all sorts of things that she's unaware of. That's correct, but more importantly, it's a non-consensual act, and that is the problem. And I've had partners say that they felt raped because, you know, they were having sex with all these people they didn't know about, not literally, but, well, I guess literally if somebody is transmitting a disease. And we know that, you know, women are more likely to contract diseases than men are by way of intercourse because men can be carriers of viruses and bacteria and disease 
and not necessarily get the virus or the disease um, or be symptomatic, but the but women will because our uh, sexual organ organ the vagina is receptive, and we've got you know the walls of the vagina. Obviously, the um, urethral opening, the cervical os, and so that allows a lot of germs and bacteria to impact us in a way they may not work, uh, impact somebody where it's solely on the surface of their body, on the skin. So that in and of itself um, can be fatal. You know, we know that people that get HPV get cancer, and if somebody gets HIV, that certainly can be, although there are lots of medications for it today. But nonetheless, um, the problem here is with consent, and I think we have to look at the definition of consent, right, which is oh. um, about about compliance or approval about what is being done to the other. It's a, it's a voluntary agreement about a ta- uh, an action. And if your husband says to you, hi, I had sex with a sex worker today, or I'm having an affair with someone, um, and I want to have unprotected sex with you too, are you okay with that? And you say yes, then there's no problem. But the problem is in these sex addiction cases and in most intimate betrayal cases, the betraying person is not giving informed consent. Well, absolutely. And so in general, you find that after discovery, I find this too, women either revolt from sex or they they want to compare them they put themselves in a situation where they compare themselves by having lots of sex to say see I can be as sexual as your sex partner and it puts them in increased risk again if they take that attitude because you know they haven't gotten that checkup they haven't been tested they haven't done all the things you need to do to be safe and stable and protect yourself Right, and that, um, you know, really would recommend that any partners listening to this take a look at Jennifer Freyd's book on betrayal blindness. And she's really asking the question is, why don't we see betrayal? And that's often because we need the person who's violating us. And the other thing that happens is that women you know, in large part are, quote, the keepers of the relationship. And women are very quick to forgive or they're quick to look the other way or very quick to accommodate the other or to make sure that he's okay, that his feelings don't get hurt. Um, They may also feel like if they have sex with him, they won't lose him. Um, They may also feel shame because they actually find the infidelity arousing, like they're more, quote, horny than normal because of fear, fear that I'm going to lose this person. So women tend to acquiesce. Um, they'll have sex even though they don't want to, and they'll go through with it. They'll be able to orgasm, um, and then afterwards they feel sad about it or they're enraged about it, and their husbands don't understand, you know, why there's such a roller coaster of feelings. And it's because she she actually hates herself for having had sex with him. She hates him. She doesn't want to lose him. She's you know destroyed because of the level of betrayal, and yet she is sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes re-traumatizing herself because she's putting herself through this kind of meat grinder. And I just want to go back to consent for a moment. 
Um, there is a consent activist named Joyce Short. Um, she also has a website that's worth looking at um, called consentawareness.net. And Joyce defines consent as freely given, knowledgeable, and informed agreement. And when we don't have freely given information or we're not knowledgeable or we're not informed about the agreement, then this is a form of assault. Um, and she even goes on to say that, you know, rape is an aggravated form of, of assault. We know that. But predators who use nonviolent methods um, that undermine their victim's self-determination over their bodies are creating a crime. And that's how I see this, that this is non-consensual sex, it's assaultive, and it's criminal. And I think women don't want to look that deeply, um, because if they look that deeply, they're really going to be in touch with just profound uh, rage, and so much so that they may not want to be in this marriage. And this is another point of or intersection, I would say, because let's just call it the old days, pre-2005, um, there was a lot of damages done to marriages where um, the partner and the sex addict were split apart and the partners were told to, told to stay on their side of the street and kind of mind their own business, um, which was a big mistake in the reparation of these marriages. Now we're in an era where we're doing everything we can to repair the marriages quickly. Um, that's the process of disclosure, of getting honest, um, helping the addict who often and has no empathy to have empathy for the impact on the partner as opposed to shrinking into their narcissism and shame and running away from the partner's upset, hurt, and anger. But I wonder, and I don't know the answer to this at all, but I wonder if the pendulum has swung so far in the opposite direction um, that we're missing that sometimes it's probably in the best interest of some women to leave these marriages. Because sometimes I'm not sure we're just looking at sex addiction. I think we're looking at to, uh, some severe um, pathology, characterological issues, um, especially when the addict doesn't have remorse. Um, and I think this is a gray area and something that we as therapists need to be mindful of because partners of sex addicts come to people that are certified partner experts because regular, quote, regular therapist would tell her to leave the marriage, which is a lack of understanding of the complexity of what it means to actually leave a marriage. But are we erring too far in that direction when we're not looking at how egregious some of these behaviors are? Oh, that's such a good point. You know, I am definitely a proponent of staying together if both people want to do that. But I agree with you that there are plenty of women who have been socialized or maybe there's dependency issues, you know, the financial mm -hmm. dependency, the emotional dependency that they don't feel strong enough to leave and right. so they continue to withstand the trauma of of the pain of this kind of pathology. That's right. And they also go into this betrayal blindness. They choose not to see what they see because of the reasons that you're talking about. I mean, I've seen this time and again where women are in these old marriages. I mean, if you're not in the state of California, 
because it's a community property, 50-50 state after 10 years. But, you know, if somebody's married and divorced in New York, you could be married for 25 years and 50 years old and raise children and you name it, and you can be on the street. They can say to you, you're able-bodied, go get a job, um, and they can get nothing. And so women will endure all sorts of things for their safety and security and their children um, in order to stay in relationships that are sometimes abusive, even though it's not physical abuse. The emotional and psychological abuse can be so destructive. So I think we just need to keep looking more closely um, at the depth of this kind of violation um, and not minimizing it. Well, I agree, and especially we have a lot of clinicians and coaches that listen to this show. This is an app-sponsored radio show, and so right. we we really believe in partner-sensitive training and treatment, and we believe in that trauma model. We're based on Jennifer Freed, and what I a hundred percent agree with is the fact that if they're not in a position where they believe they can leave, then as a trained sex addiction therapist or partner trauma specialist, you got to create an exit plan and an action plan that keeps them as safe as possible, especially right. if they're dealing with this narcissism and this pathology. Now, my experience is the addict can be two different. I mean, I see two different types of addicts that work with sex workers and, you know, have this compulsive sexual addiction. There are the sex addicts that feel so much remorse and have so much self-loathing. And after every time they say, I'm going to stop this, because they don't have the courage to be honest until, of course, discovery. Um, and they immediately make huge gains in their recovery because they just wanted something to stop the insanity. Right. The other type of person is narcissistic in all sorts of other ways. And you can mm -hmm. see it in terms of how they approach their wives, what they expect of their wives, the control they have over their wives. And so those are the ones that obviously need that exit plan. The, even if they yes. choose not to use it, you need to help them figure it out. Well, and help them get into reality. And I would agree. I mean, for me, the litmus test with the addicts is do they exhibit um, guilt, shame, and remorse? And if they don't, then we have a problem. Uh, because then that's when I think we're looking beyond addiction um, and we're looking more at characterological issues. And so I think, you know, partners need to understand what the diagnosis is of their husbands beyond sex addiction. Um, who is this person? How much can you expect them to change over time? What's realistic? What isn't? Um, and somebody who is has a narcissistic personality disorder really needs to be, in, in my opinion, in psychoanalysis three times a week. You know, yes, they can have to go to meetings, and yes, they have to work a program, but sometimes that just makes them better liars. Um, really doing depth work is essential for them to start to change the very fabric of who they are, because people can be dry drunks, as you well know. They can stop drinking and still be nasty. Um, so I think we have to keep educating our partners and be honest with them about the prognosis 
of this particular marriage, you know, based on what their husbands are doing, not what they say, um, but what they're actually doing. Um, and if they can start to see them getting better incrementally and treating them better. Um, and then, of course, the partner also has to look at why have I tolerated this for so long? Even though I didn't know it was sexual acting out, I didn't know he was verbally abusive or not present or I look the other way. And often there are good reasons for that. Um, but it's about helping the partner also sometimes come out of their own dissociation or their own family of origin trauma and recognizing that she has the right um, to um, have clear, informed knowledge about what her husband has been up to and is up to so that she can consent to being sexual with him. Um, because well, assent, this is an important distinction, assent means that you're agreeing to something on its face value. If you ask me what color blouse I'm wearing today and I tell you it's white, then you're going to take me at face value. But if I'm lying to you, there's no way that you know that, right? You, you have no way of knowing that. So there's no real consent between the two of us in that moment. Well, yes. And, you know, now that we're talking a little bit more about dialogue, and you just made such an important point about a woman being aware of what her husband's diagnoses or diagnoses are, um, uh -huh. what would you suggest to a partner who's discovered that her husband is a sex addict? We can either use the example of somebody who's been with many, many, many sex workers, or right. we can use somebody who has a porn addiction. How do they obtain that information? Because it's not my experience is Clients don't know what they've been diagnosed in the past. If it, if it isn't anxiety or, or depression, they don't know. So what would you advise right. a partner to do? Well, one of the things I think is increasingly helpful is psychological testing. And I think um, a lot of therapists who aren't psychologists don't lean in that direction. But my diagnostic skills are pretty sharp after working with male sex addicts for over 20 years now. I kind of know what I'm looking at. But there are times when I feel like, you know what, I don't have a picture here of what's going on. I cannot conceptualize this. And that's when psychological testing can be enormously helpful. Um, you need a good tester. My preference is somebody who works in the um, realm of collaborative psych testing um, and that there is a report that goes to the therapist afterwards that gives us a very clear picture of who this person is and what kind of treatment they're going to need specifically above and beyond the sex addiction treatment. Because you and I know that sex addiction treatment arrests the sexual behaviors that are problematic. Um, it has somebody focusing on changing their behaviors um, and keeps them, quote, contained. But these deeper issues that I'm talking about require long-term therapy, and that's something that the couple needs to understand. This is not like a one-and-done thing, or like Pat Karn says, people get better enough and then they drop out of therapy. This is a long-term proposition. So I think partners it's difficult because, you know, it's just you've just been hit in the head with a baseball bat, and now you're asking that person to get up and to make some decisions about how their life needs to go now because they thought their partner was running it appropriately, and it turns out they need a babysitter. 
Um, and that means they need to um, have some boundaries around going to meetings, having a sponsor, working a program, going to therapy, um, and having rigorous accountability on a day-to-day basis so that the partner has some sense that her reality is truly her reality right now. Um, So that's Mm -hmm. a lot to ask somebody who's just been traumatized. But Certainly over time, uh, together with the therapist, they can make a plan of what that rigorous accountability looks like. Well, I love that you said the accountability piece. And, again, we're dealing with our expertise because we know what we know and we know what works. And regular therapists, unfortunately, don't. And so they don't know all the tools of recovery that can help somebody. And the fact that that partner has every right to know what her husband is doing to get healthy because it's her health too that she's sacrificing if she does it. Um, And I I think... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Continue. Well, I was going to ask you, so you said psychological testing, and I agree that's very, very helpful. And, of course, having her sign, him sign a release of information so that she can have that information, that so that she can go in for that first appointment, knowing that some psychologists may think that she's the controlling one or she's the fragile one because she wants to be a part of that process. Right. So a couple of things. One, I think those of us that treat male sex addicts can do a much better job of when we're making sobriety plans or circle plans with the addicts, saying to them, let's talk about what your daily and weekly accountability is going to be to your wife. Your wife should not be chasing after you to know what your sobriety plan looks like, how many meetings you're going to, who your sponsor is, what you're working on, passwords to your phone, your email accounts, you name it. You should be offering that up to her. So I think, you know, on the addict side, um, we can do a better job with that. Where the psych testing is concerned, I want to be clear that what I think is important are projective tests, not just MMPI or MCMI, um, which will tell us about somebody's character issues, but the projective test gives us a much deeper look into that person's psyche. So the Rorschach, uh, the TAT, um, there is another test, an Italian test called the VARTAG that some therapists... um, we're lucky we have a CSET here in Los Angeles, Dr. Tracy Zemanski, who does that. Um, and so you want therapists that do projective work specifically, because that's going to get you a much clearer picture. And then after the test results come in, um, the addict needs to sign a res- uh, release with the partner's therapist so that the partner's therapist gets a copy of that psych report. Um, and the partner's therapist, the psych- the psychologist should go over the report with the partner's therapist. So let's say I'm the psychologist and you're the partner's therapist. I would write the report. I would send you a copy of the report so you could read it. After you read it and highlight it, you would call me and we would make 10, 15 minutes to talk about it on the phone so I can answer any questions that you might have. And then you deliver the news to her so that she's not mm-hmm. put in this position of being pathologized as being controlling or fragile or anything else. Um, or you have the couple come in, which would probably even be better, um, so that he's there too. So you can say to her, so this is who your husband is. 
This is the fabric of his being. This is who you married. This is why you've got what you've got. And you. this is going to be the treatment plan here. And you need to know that you're in for a very long process, you know, a good yeah. three- to five-year mm-hmm. process. Um, and so that people are, I think my bias is that we get people into reality as quickly as possible because both parties are in um, a modicum of denial one way or the other. I mean, you couldn't survive this if you weren't in some denial or minimizing it. Right. That's a natural process for somebody who is not sure what she wants to do. And so my next question is, do you believe that women get over this and can be sexual again with a person who has violated them in this way? Well, I do because I've seen it happen, but I have to say it just takes an enormous amount of work, and people need to understand that. You know, women will say, well, I love him, and love is not enough. Um, What I think works best is when people really share the same value system, ironically, because the addict has value you know, violated all of those values and then some. But fundamentally, if they share the same value systems, if they want the same things, um, if they really think they can repair this together, and I think the partner needs to do some real honest work about what am I afraid of? If I were to leave this guy, what scares me the most? Uh, Because I think all too often we don't look at that too closely either. It's sort of a general sweeping idea about it. Um, But I've had clients who stayed because of their children. And, you know, five years later, ten years later, they're so grateful that they did. Because if they hadn't had children, they would have left. Um, And they've reworked their marriages to something really good and true and beautiful and better than it's ever been because now they have an entire language uh, for being vulnerable and being honest and therefore intimate with each other. Whereas prior to that, they didn't. They got married for all sorts of reasons. Um, I think a lot of people just don't know each other when they get married, quite honestly, because I've been married to my husband going on 20 years now, and I'm just now seeing more of who he is. Um, So it's not because he's hiding anything. I think that's just how we all are. It takes a long time to get to know someone. So the reparation process is possible, um, but I don't think people should minimize the amount of time, energy, and money it's going to take in order to make that happen. So they have to be devoted to it um, as a cause to heal themselves, heal their coupleship, to heal intergenerational transmission of these patterns. Um, There's also a socio-political piece to this whole thing also. Um, I believe that a lot of why men, quote, get away with murder is because we have this patriarchal overlay of men will be men or boys will be boys. And historically, women have looked the other way, or we've had to for so many reasons. And I don't think it's missed on anybody that women are in a fight right now for their rights in a way we haven't been since the 1970s. And let's also remember that it wasn't until the 70s that marital rape was even on the books. Um, And I'm looking at this as a form of marital assault, not rape, but certainly assault because it's non-consensual. So here we are again. Yeah, absolutely. And 
And I agree with you implicitly. Now, I, I want to ask you, if for the clinicians and coaches working and listening to this show, um, this may be a new paradigm for them to recognize that this isn't just sexual addiction, compulsive sexual problematic behavior, but indeed it's characterological, it's pathological, and it is assault. So what would you advise them to do if they get somebody in their office who has had a history of sex workers and has never divulged the truth until discovery? Well, with that partner, I mean, I think we have to treat these cases a little bit like domestic violence cases, which is kind of where we started Mm -hmm. this conversation, that it's safety first. You know, what kind of shape is she in? How resilient is she? Um, When when the, the women that are the most hyper aroused are the ones that are easiest to work with because they're just mad as hell and they want to burn the house down. That's actually a healthy reaction. The problematic reaction is when we get uh, parasympathetic hypoarousal and you've got someone who's in a frozen state, who's not feeling anything. You've got to be very curious about why that is. So it's either abuse directly from the marriage or you're looking at historical uh, family of origin patterns in her autonomic nervous system. And I think this is true across the board. No matter how securely attached you are, um, you know, your regulatory capacities are assaulted in this kind of breach. And some people are more resilient than others, depending on their original attachment or regulatory strategies. So if somebody comes from a fairly secure family, actually, some of the women that are the most securely attached are the ones who just leave right off the bat. They say, I'm not taking this, and they're out. And that's the healthiest thing they can do. So the more fragile someone is, the more difficult it's going to be for them to leave these relationships. So safety first, obviously. Um, Lots of conversations about self-care. Um, any kind of resourcing that can be done via EMDR or other energy therapies um, that can help that person start to come online. So when that frozen woman starts to get angry, that's when you know you're working well. Then you've got some traction and something to work with. Um, And you really want to help her with um, getting honest about what it's really like in that household because she will protect him as victims of domestic violence often do. Um, you know, it's sort of the Stockholm syndrome and also this betrayal blindness. So we have to be compassionately curious and we have to be very careful that we're not making uh, big moves. They've got to be small moves, consistent small moves that are moving her towards her functioning coming up first and foremost. Yes, 100%. And I appreciate the fact that, again, you are identifying that sometimes the angriest woman um, is also the woman that has the most resiliency and will be able to decide how she can protect herself. And right. it's not that she's crazy, although certainly is probably in a state of post-traumatic stress, but she also can have that same amount of resiliency once her brain calms down a little bit. 
Right. Um, well, she can move, and, this is the point, because it's yeah. fight or flight, and she's in a fight mode right now, and flee is a movement move. So, yeah, once her, her brain and her autonomic nervous system get regulated, she can take that same energy and start to move into action um, and ask herself, how do I take back my life? You know, where do I start with self-care? What are my finances like? Where do I want to live? Do I want to live with this person? Do I want to have sex with them just because it actually feels good, not because I'm connected to them, but because I'm sick of not having sex for so long? Um, How does she take back her creativity? Um, repair her parenting, start to give service, you know, whether it's volunteering for political causes or community, but how does she reclaim her own life? That's one of the healthiest things um, I think women can do when they can take that rage, uh, you know, that female, uh, the woman scorned rage and energy and put it into positive action for herself so she doesn't remain a victim. Absolutely. Now, I'm reminding our listening audience that I am talking with Alexandra Katahakis. Um, she is the director, uh, director for the Center for Healthy Sex. And I am sure there are people that are just hearing this for the first time. How can they access your facility and the people that you work with if they need more information or, want, or like what they're hearing? Sure. Well, um, we can be found at centerforhealthysex.com, and we are a sexual health agency located in Los Angeles, California. We do offer a six-day partners intensive program based on these notions um, where partners fly from all over the country and really the world. We have women come from Canada, Australia. Um, For our program, um, they could stay in a local hotel, and they're with us from 9 to 5 every day as we deconstruct and work through all of this the best we can. And I like to say that we move women from being victims to victors uh, when they leave here. So um, you can reach us anytime. Our phone number is also 310-843-9902. And we have several intake counselors that are always available to answer questions or offer resources to you no matter where in the world you're located. Well, you can tell that you're a real partner advocate, but you also provide intensives uh, for couples and also for sex addicts, do you not? Yes, for sex addicts, both female and male sex addicts, we have a two-week program, and those uh, clients are required to live in a sober living of our choice, Um, so they're not unsupervised at any time. They're transported to and from Center for Healthy Sex every day, and they're with us from 9.30 to 5 every day. Uh, They go to 12-step meetings, and I think our program is probably one of the best two-week programs in the country uh, because we pack a lot in. It's almost like an inpatient experience. Uh, We obviously don't have the family week component of it, and we can't focus on a week of uh, EMDR, but we do offer those services, um, and we're really deconstructing denial the first week um, and combing through their behaviors with a fine-tooth comb. And the second week is focused on relapse prevention. So um, I'm very proud of this program. I've been running it for almost 15 years now, and I've got a great team of CSATs. Uh, on staff that facilitate the program. So, um, yes, thank you for that. And that is for men and for female sex and love addicts, uh, but we don't intermingle the males and females. They're separate programs at separate times. 
Absolutely. So I want to remind our listening audience that's at www.centerforhealthysex.com. Or you can contact them at 310-843-9902. It's so actually 842. You, the phone number is 310-842-9903. Oh, gosh. You're, it says differently on your sheet. Sorry about that. Wait, wait, wait. What does it say um, on my sheet? On yours it says 310-843-9902. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. So not always confuse everybody correctly. You're actually right. I'm sorry about that. No, that's okay because I figured I was right. It made more sense that that I would have that. I'd have that. Okay. Okay, so anything you want to leave with our listening audience before we end for today? Yeah, I want to remind all women about consent. If you think about the ABCs of consent, the first one is awareness. So how aware are you about what you want from your sexual experience, your body, what you like sexually, what feels safe for you? Um, So spend time investigating what's pleasurable for you. Be aware of yourself. The B stands for boundaries. Are you available for sex? Um, What about intercourse? What parts of your body don't want touch? Does no mean no? Um, So be clear about when you're available for sex. And C is communication, which is probably one of the most important things, is how do you talk about your wants and needs to your partner? How do you communicate your boundaries? There was a study that just came out that's just sort of hilarious that says that the key to good sex is communication. (laughs) So talk about sex. If you're afraid to talk about it with your partner, Talk about it with your girlfriends, talk about it with your therapist, and then talk about it with your partner. Um, And those three things, the ABCs, I think will help you remember that sex is about your pleasure um, and what you want to need, not about capitulating to someone else. And you actually have some psychoeducational material on your website for partners. Isn't that correct? Yes, we have also a YouTube channel. So if you go to YouTube and type in Center for Healthy Sex, we have sex videotapes, not videotapes, we have sex experts from around the country speaking on every manner of sex and sexuality you can imagine there. Um, And you'll find a wealth of knowledge there about sexual pain, you know, pelvic pain disorders, desire, dysfunction, addiction, partners, you name it. So uh, I really encourage people to take a look at those videos. I think you'll find them very useful. Yeah, well, you know as well as I do that partners are by far the best at getting psychoeducation. They know more than mm-hmm. many clinicians and coaches. So oh, I'm yeah. sure they will look, look you up. And, again, that is at www.centerforhealthysex.com, or they have their own YouTube channel under that same name. So, Dr. Katahakas, thank you so much for spending your time with us this afternoon. You're welcome, Carol. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You have a great day. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. So, again, that was Dr. Alex Katahakis, and she has made it her mission for the last 15, 20 years to work with sex addicts and partners and really help them to disseminate information to them so they will know what to do in their own life. And and I can't say it enough. We really believe that when you know better, you do better. And as a partner, that means that when you hear that this might be assault, 
then maybe you look at it differently and you decide with more intensity, how do you keep yourself safe? So that's it for the show. I will see you next week, as I say at the end of every radio blog. You know, there will only be one of you at all times. So fearlessly have the courage to be yourself and take with you what Dr. Katahaka said about anger can be a very healthy thing in getting you to move forward and taking control of your own life. We'll catch you next week for more Betrayal Recovery Radio. And we all know that's sponsored by APSAC, the partner-sensitive training group that helps coaches and clinicians learn about partner-sensitive treatment. For more information, go to APSAC. Appsets.org.